Hi, Tisha. Hi, Jen. <laughs> we have hung out a lot today. I know. Do you love me or do you hate me after today? <laughs> you know, I had a talk with my child trying to figure out if he's often this goofy in class because I didn't love what I was seeing. Mm. And I know, like, in the grand scheme of things. Maybe we should tell people what we're talking about. <laughs> we're ta So Tisha is um, Logan's science teacher. And they have this thing here called Scientist in the School where a scientist comes in and teaches them a lesson. And in this one, they were doing, like, experiments and stuff. And usually pa some parents will come in and help. And so last week, Tisha was like, oh, are you available next Wednesday for Scientist in the School with Logan's class? And straight up, I said, I am available, but I don't want to do that. And I said, you're doing it. Bring a friend. <laughs> well, first I was like, but then I was like, you know, let me ask Logan first, because I was actually fairly certain, because they won't talk to me in the schoolyard anymore, that it was going to be a big fat no. But it was not a big fat no. So then, because Tisha asked and I didn't get a no, I was like, well, now I have to do this. I like to participate, although I haven't really had the opportunity because of the pandemic to yeah. participate. But I just know the class very well. Our school is small. These kids have been together for a long time, since they were four. And some of the boys specifically are a lot and I just guess I just didn't really want to deal with it <laughs> and, I and they do? weren't that no. and they well I have you get paid to um they were they were not bad if there are any of their parents listening they were definitely not bad no they weren't they were lovely they weren't they they are not the same kids they were the last time I helped out the class but my kid was in a very goofy mood and I was like what is going on with you Again, probably didn't stand out specifically to Tisha because it was not disruptive in any way. No. But as a mother, I was like, you can't do that. But yes, no. So I don't hate you. I was happy to see you. Right. <laughs> but it's been a busy day because I did that. And then I got talking with one of the moms in front of school for the like 20 minutes that I should have had to myself before to come home before I picked right. him up. Then I picked him up. Then... I had to bring my little one to tutoring and had um, a little tag along with one of the neighbor kids because it was just easier for, for their family and that's fine. I like to do that stuff. I got to hang out with a little girl for the afternoon, which in my life does never happen. Right. We walked around Michael's and decided we wanted to move in and they have all this Christmas stuff out. I was like, we were like, they have pillows and blankets. We can just stay here <laughs> with all the glitter and the sparkles. And she's like, why are we just walking around and not buying anything? I go, because we don't need anything. She goes, well, that's not fun. <laughs> True. It is, it is a little more fun when you actually buy something. It is. But I, I'm like, I don't think you guys need anything. And we definitely don't need anything. Um, but it's really fun to look around the craft store. It is. For sure. And, and then we got home and then we ate. And then it was like, now we're here doing this. And it's all been like nothing bad. I have nothing bad to say about any of it. But like all of a sudden, I feel like my post-COVID nervous system needs time to like come down from days like this. Yeah. I, yes, I agree. And I'm feeling that kind of post-COVID, I don't know. I'm feeling it hard these days being back at work and extracurriculars back and um, 
even just like school clubs and sports teams. And I feel like every day I'm trying to uh, coordinate things and change plans because, you know, I don't know, my little one was on the cross country team. So it was like waking up early and getting her there. And my older one was doing um, board and ball on Wednesday and, and Mondays or something. And I'm like trying to keep it all straight in my head. And during COVID when that stuff wasn't happening, just things were simpler <laughs> there wasn't as much stuff to keep track of so it's like yeah if somebody wanted to go for a walk or if somebody wanted to like have a drink over zoom you're always available i always would just say sure i'm not doing anything yeah sure yeah. and there's a part of me that's still just saying sure without paying attention to what else i might have ah. and acknowledging what my capacity might be on that day because mm -hmm. the slower pace of the pandemic suited me well Obviously, there were things that were hard. Obviously, there was like, you know, sometimes feeling a little lonely or isolated, but the slower pace definitely suited me. And as things pick up again, it is definitely a challenge and I'm feeling it hard, I would say, within the last month. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And maybe my capacity for managing all of that is a little diminished because life was so slow for a while and I'm out of that routine and yeah. I don't want it back by the way. I don't either and this is a struggle for me because your girls are happy to be doing all of the things and they're whether it's just because of you or whatever, like they're joining the things, right? Where mine mm -hmm. are a lot harder to get to do that. But okay. because they are very quick to just want to sit in front of like a tablet or video games, mm -hmm. I kind of want them to do a little bit more. So right. there's an element of it that I'm putting on us. So that's a, it's not like they're begging me to do it. Like, I feel like I would feel differently, like with your girls and dance, they love dance. Um, yes. And you know, like I, I would have a different point of view on it where it's like, I'm like forcing this shit. And my oldest daughter thinks she wants to join everything. Like any club, anything that's offered at the school, she's like, I'm in, let me join it. And it's a lot. And she does like dance competitively. So it's a lot. And she like, she brought home a basketball tryout permission form yesterday. And she just finished like board and ball. She was doing that and she's on the robotics team. Plus she has dance and she has piano. And she brings home basketball. I was like, do you like basketball? She's like, I don't know. I'm like, well, do you want to try? Like, do you want to play basketball? She's like, I don't know. But it's just like, it's offered. And she's like, yes. I'm yes. Like, and I don't want to like shame her or anything, but like she's the shortest student in her grade. <laughs> Like, she's the shortest girl in her grade. So the fact that she's like, I'm going to try out for basketball. I'm like, do you know basketball is for tall people? And, like, I don't want to be exclusionary, but, like, you've got a lot going on. Do you really want to take on basketball? Well, so I have a question, though. Was she of this mind before the pandemic? So before the pandemic, she was in grade three so there were fewer opportunities but she definitely 
joined the choir and the eco club. Yeah, so she definitely joined the things that were available to her at that time but i think now she's older there's so much more available well there's and i that. think she's just excited about having opportunities i think having opportunities i think you guys in the lockdown periods and and the pandemic times they saw far less kids than mine did because we, we live no on well yeah. because we live on a street where there's seven kids and they you know yeah. like we we kind of just wrote it off that they are going to play together because all of us and them needed it. Yeah. So it was like it was easy. It was an easy one. Like so, I feel like there's an element. They're still coming off of all this too. Yeah. Right. They are. Absolutely. And like, they are. You yeah. know, it's like oh my god, I can. Not only is it available to me, but like I'm allowed. And like you know, it's just all and of just this. try new things. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's, have new experiences. That's a great. I mean, I I love that about her because mm-hmm. mine are very reluctant. They always like everything, but like it's funny to watch them because we on Sunday um had a reunion for Camp Aaron, which was the uh yes. camp for bereaved kids that I talked about on here last spring. And they were like, oh, I hope I get to see so-and-so, and and I hope I get to see so-and-so. And And I'm like, well, we don't know who's going to be there. Mm -hmm. But I just thought it was good to go, and you can see, like, some of the buddies and and the director and and the people that – some of the people that – like, the adults anyway that we knew. And they were kind of really weird at first. So they definitely have a much more cautious approach to -hmm. doing things. But then they they fall into it and they fell into it. And I wanted to bring up Camp Aaron because I am going to make a plug anytime any I can because I have a feeling that there are other bereaved humans that listen to our show. And if you have little oh, ones, sure. they have to go to Camp Aaron, whether it's Toronto or wherever. They are all over North America, anywhere. There is a Major League Baseball team and maybe beyond that, they have a Camp Aaron. Um we watched a video that they put together of the weekend and it's just a really special place. Like I want to go. I have, I have plans to volunteer. So if you are looking for an organization to donate to this holiday season, consider um, specifically Camp Aaron Toronto, because that's the one that I love, but any of them, if you have or know bereaved children, consider sending them to Camp Aaron. They take kids up to 17. And I will say, watching these girls that you could tell hadn't seen each other in a while get together was really cool. And Mm -hmm. seeing the way, like, you could tell that they were means of support for each other, which for kids is important. Well, for everybody is important. But I think when you're a teenager, it's harder to be open about that stuff, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where you can be, like, real about the crappy stuff because you've all lost someone. And if you're somebody who digs volunteering, they need volunteers, probably at any of them. And I think it's a really cool thing to be a part of. So that's my plea, folks. Yeah. If any of you fall into that, do that because it was pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And even my eldest is like, I can't wait till I'm old enough to volunteer. Which oh, I love. I love it. Yeah. And so I believe if you follow me personally on social, look out because they want to do their own little camp passion, as they call it, project and raise some money this holiday season. So we're working out the details of that. All right. But anyway, that was my own personal plug <laughs> that I had to do because yeah. I have a podcast, so I get to do it. We can plug things that we want to. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like this episode you're about to listen to features one of our favorite authors and we definitely plug her book. (laughs) 
Well, we're pl- she, she plugs her book and we're happy to plug her book. You guys are going to love her. And don't forget to leave us a review. Check out our Patreon where I definitely am not cutting tons out of our conversations, but I am cutting chunks out of our conversations that feel like they've like lost the plot of the episode too much because that's how human conversation works. Yeah. But you get the full juicy all of it over on our Patreon and in video form, which can be fun. Because you get to actually see our facial reactions and sometimes empty seats because (laughs) there have been times that like one of us has to mute and go do something. (laughs) The beauty of having two hosts. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So definitely check that out as well. And if you join Patreon, you get a discount on our merch store. Just saying. So any of those ways that you feel compelled to support, we love it. And Mm -hmm. you're going to love this episode. I'm Jen and welcome back to the Now What Pod. I'm Tisha and we are here today with Emily Barth Eisler, who I am so excited to have here. So welcome, Emily. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. So this is not our first time chatting, although it's our first time chatting on the podcast, because if you didn't know, we run a book club in conjunction with the podcast and Every time we choose a book, we always reach out to the authors and invite them to come on. And we read Emily's book, Aftermath, and we reached out to her and she came to our book club and we loved her and found out some things about her during that meeting and asked her if she would come on the podcast and kind of share a little bit of her story. It was so fun to do that with you all. It's always, it's still thrilling to me when like people I don't know or I'm not blood related to actually read the book. Like it's still such a thrill. And the fact that you guys picked it was just, I mean, I, I'm i am so excited and it was such a great conversation and I really appreciated just getting to hear what you thought of it. And it was, it was such a joy. So I'm excited to be back. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what's even more interesting is a previous book club where an author had come, she had mentioned Emily's book so that it like kind of. Oh, the book did club I know? Is just oh, keep, yeah, Zora, Zora Zolvansky. Nora Zolvansky. Nora. Yeah, of course. So yeah. okay. it's this funny little it's a chain reaction. Yeah, which has yeah. been really great and really exciting. Well, I, I love think. that. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. And uh, yeah, so it's a great book and it's called Aftermath, and you should definitely read it. Mm-hmm. And I guess that leads a little bit to like to what you do. So obviously you're an author and you're a gun violence activist. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, because the book kind of touches upon the after effects of like what happens in a school or in a community after kind of a school shooting, which we're talking about today, but I think people should go and read your book. I would love that. And I, I always like to sort of tell people a couple things about the book. One is it's written for middle schoolers, but when I think about books written for kids that age, I really think in best case scenario, they should read it along with a parent or a teacher or a librarian or somebody in their life they can talk to about it. And it is not at all graphic about gun violence. It mentions the existence of gun violence, obviously, but it takes place long after a school shooting. And it's very much about grief and resilience and repair. I mean, we could probably talk about this all night. (laughs) I know. I I feel like there's a lot of tangents we could go on and just be like really happy. But but beyond being an author, which we obviously love, we kind of brought you on here to 
to talk more about your journey with OCD. So my other full-time job. From what I understand, which is not much about OCD, it kind of leaves you with that impression. Well, it can be, it can be. Yeah. And uh, thank God there is really good medicine that works for OCD. So, you know, it's, but you know, it, I mean, I feel like this is a much longer conversation, which is good because we're about to have a much longer conversation, yeah. but there is a way in which OCD is part of my creativity and my personality and my sensibility. Mm -hmm. But the beautiful thing that I learned when I was ooh, maybe 19 and I started taking medication for it is that it doesn't have to be my entire personality and it doesn't have to be this overwhelming, all-encompassing part of my creativity that medication allows me to sort of use it as my superpower and not have it control me. So, and I remember, you know, I was so worried, like, was it going to just wash me out and make me sort of this dull, even version of myself, which is hilarious because that's, <laughs> that's just not possible. But it, I think the best thing is it just gives me a choice of like how much of that kind of creative, anxious energy I want to let into my life at what moment. And I certainly feel like OCD and anxiety in general is like, like I said, it, it's, it's also my superpower. Like I'm a writer because my brain is always going a hundred miles a minute and thinking of all of these possibilities and what could happen. And what if this happened? And mm -hmm. what if this person said this? And there is this very much rabbit hole obsessive quality to creativity, at least for me. I mean, I know all writers have different processes. All creative people have different ways of being. But I no longer think of OCD as a bad thing. I think of it as something that needs to be tended to like any other piece of our health. And it's something that uh, that has woven itself or that I, I should say that I've worked really hard to weave into my life in a way that works for me. That, you know, before we started recording, we were talking about like, leaving cars unlocked accidentally or leaving house doors unlocked. And I jokingly said, but I mean it, you know, one benefit of having OCD is that I rarely, I mean, knock on all the wood, because now I'm saying this and I'm jinxing it, right. but I rarely like mess up and leave my car unlocked or forget to lock my front door. Like it, I have found mm -hmm. a way to use that energy to be pretty on top of it. Right. You know, then of course there are times when it's, it, it can be too much. And that's, that's what, you know, that's what psychopharmacologists do. It's like the constant balance of, you know, is it working for you or are you working for it? But, you know, the pandemic was such an interesting experience as a person who's had OCD forever, who had recently sort of, you're never finished, but I feel like I had closed a chapter really working on not being germ obsessed because my OCD sometimes takes on a form of, of sort of hypochondria and germ focus. And I have really been working on not thinking about surfaces and air breathing and touching things and hand washing. And then the pandemic oh, hit no. and the whole world is basically being told not to do doing. all of the things that I had just spent a lot of time in therapy working on not, not doing. Oh my so God. It was a really strange, strange time, but you know, I had a, a good laugh about that with my yeah. other OCD well, then all of a sudden and, the know, whole I'm, I'm certainly not alone in like that and uh, <laughs> it was a weird experience <laughs> yes and I was like welcome 
where have you all been? Like, I've been doing this, this for my 20 life. years. Yeah. Where have you got, what have you been doing? Like, oh yeah, I know you guys have been like picking your nose and touching the subway <laughs> pole and I've been judging you all along and now you finally see. Oh gosh. Yeah. So, you know. So what, when, when did your, like, when were you first diagnosed? When did, was, was it there first suspected? I would imagine it, it was suspected either by you or family members that there was something going on. Well, so the interesting thing about OCD is that it often, but not always, but I'd say often comes along with other forms of anxiety. Yeah. So usually that would be generalized anxiety disorder. So I, I don't know. There are a lot of things that I think sort of got in the way of or became part of my diagnosis with OCD and my journey with anxiety in general. I also, as a child, had a pretty severe form of hypoglycemia, which is when it's, I had a chronic condition of hypoglycemia. For most people, it is when your blood sugar gets low and it's concerned, you know, if diabetics are taking too much insulin, it can happen. And for regular people not on any medication, it can happen if you don't eat enough or if you're, you know, working out a lot and you just, your body runs out of fuel, it runs out of sugar. So when I was a kid, and it's interesting because I've learned more about this, there's a genetic mutation that I actually am getting tested for that includes this, this chronic hypoglycemia. And so I would just, you know, like if I went a minute over three hours between meals and sma and snacks, like my body just couldn't hold on to sugar. So, and my body does not convert other foods into sugar. So for example, you know, a lot of like in my twenties, I tried the Atkins diet because we all <laughs> did. And we can talk about diet culture after this too, because I feel like that is so connected to OCD. And, you know, orthorexia and all sorts of oh, yeah. things that are all just like offshoots of OCD. But I tried the Atkins diet and just like passed out. Like my body yeah. doesn't take protein and turn it into energy. It's like, where are the carbs? We need simple carbs. So anyway, so as a, as a young child, it became very apparent, I, I think pretty early on, that I had this severe form of chronic hypoglycemia. And the problem or maybe the benefit it's so easy to sort of post game this now 40 or 35 years later and look at it and say like oh, okay it's interesting how that worked out for me is that the symptoms of low blood sugar are a lot like the symptoms of anxiety and they cause each other there there's so much interconnectedness so when when i have low blood sugar the symptoms are, you know, you can get hot and your heart's racing and you feel dizzy and uh, unstable and your mind is racing a mile a minute, which also can, for some people is, is what a panic attack is. Right. Yeah. So, and it kind of does like your body is panicking. Cause it's like, we don't have any sugar. And for people listening who are not like well-versed in diet culture and all this, you know, sugar has been so maligned in our culture. And I think I have an interesting perspective on how necessary it is and how like we all need carbs mm -hmm. and all of this, like diet culture has kind of co-opted sugar to be this terrible thing. And it's, it's just like really not yeah. obviously in a moderation of whatever, you know, like everybody's different and you know, we all have to do our own thing, but like, I've never been able to understand this whole like skipping meals or, you know, skipping carbs or like whatever. Cause like my body just shuts down. Like it just cannot, it has no reserves anyway. So 
long tangent to say that was a huge part of my childhood. And I, it got pretty severe when I was like eight or nine and I ended up being hospitalized and doing a lot of tests at Johns Hopkins. And, you know, basically at the end they were like, yeah, she has chronically low blood sugar, which is, you know, we already know there isn't much to do about it other than like eat frequently and have carbs. (laughs) So, but you know, it was pretty dramatic. And so a lot of my anxiety was focused around that and caused by that and also augmented by low blood sugar. So it was very much wrapped up in that. And it was really hard to tease apart. And we lived in a society then where we didn't talk about mental illness. So it was much easier to sort of deal with it in the context of it being about my blood sugar than to deal with all the other underlying stuff that would come up when my blood sugar was low, which was sort of classic anxiety and OCD of like repeated bad thoughts, inability to let go of those. I was really, really, as a kid, just very, very much obsessed with worrying that something bad would happen to my parents or to me. And, you know, some of those worries are really normal. And of course, they would be more heightened at times when my blood sugar was low. So it's I I don't fault any doctors or my parents or anybody in my life for not being able to extrapolate and separate all of that. And it's it's really interesting. And in some ways, it was a huge help because it was sort of a face saving thing because we were living in a time where it was not as socially acceptable to talk about mental illness of any kind. And so it was this easy way to talk about it with other kids and teachers and parents. Be like, oh, when my blood sugar gets low, I get shaky and I need to eat something and I might need to like sit down over here and have a minute to myself. It's like a cover story almost. Although it's a real thing for you, if you were having really just an anxiety attack, you could be like, oh, well, it's just because I need to eat something. Right. And it's also like, I think we just didn't know. I mean, I think my parents knew I was anxious, but it was so clearly worse when my blood sugar was low that it was hard to tell what the real came first. Yeah. What the real problem was, like what was the root of the problem? The fix was eat something and feel better. I think I didn't realize until I was older and I started you know, talking to friends and being in therapy and things like that, how much of the undercurrent of anxiety and OCD was always there. A kid, you don't know. And even even when you're mm-hmm. an adult, like I think you've only ever lived inside <laughs> your own brain. I assume. I mean, most book I'm working on now that's going to come out in another year is about a girl who is a, a prodigy. She plays the violin. She's a musical prodigy. And she has synesthesia, which is this condition where your senses get kind of like the your senses get sort of mashed up in your brain. People see sound or hear color or feel or taste smells or, you know, like, so your senses get mashed up. The most common one is seeing color. Like a lot of musicians have that. So the main character in my book has that. I have synesthesia. I have a couple different forms of it. And I didn't know that until fairly recently because like, I just thought that everybody's processed the world the way that I did. And I think it's a really interesting, very visceral, very visual way to explain to people how sometimes mental illness, it's its the water we're swimming in or the water that an individual is swimming in. You may have no idea, like I had OCD, I'm sure from at least the time I was six or seven and maybe earlier, but that's sort of the earliest I remember that. But to me, that was just how my brain worked. I thought everybody thought like that. And it also got so positively reinforced because I did really well at school. I was always at the tip top of my class. I was on top of things. I was always, you know, 
type A and ahead of the game and high achieving and all that. And so it felt to me and, and feels in hindsight, like a lot of, again, like I said at the beginning, like OCD is also kind of my friend and it's also kind of my superpower. You know, there were definitely times where it made me real miserable, but I didn't really understand that that was the other side of the, that same coin. And I, you know, probably wouldn't change a thing because I did figure out at various different points in my life how to make it work for me. And I'm not advocating in any way that people delay treatment or don't take medication because it is so much easier once you're taking medication mm -hmm. for it to decide how to make it work for you. It's a lot less work. Like before right. I was on medication, so up until I was 19, and then for a couple of years, finish one thought and then we'll get to that. I was on medication, it took so much effort to constantly sort of manage. And, you know, it's like, it's like having an untrained puppy. It's a lot of work. And medication is like training that puppy. And it's like, you still have the dog and it still has a lot of energy but it has its great cuddly moments where it climbs in bed with you and it snuggles with you and you have a lot more control over when it jumps or when it sits or yeah. when it goes crazy or when it's walking, you know? So like, yeah, you learn how to make it work for you. I would say there was this big break I took from medication in my late twenties, early thirties, when I, when my husband and I decided we were ready to try and have a kid. And I was so, I, I mean, every doctor well not every doctor because I had some there were some duds but a lot of doctors and a lot of friends told me it's okay you can stay on this medication and have a healthy pregnancy and it doesn't affect the baby and I was so I mean I think I was curious to try life off of medication after 10 years of being on it or nine years of being on it and I was just hell-bent that I would do everything right and the hardest way for the best outcome. And, you know, I... Why is the right way when it comes oh, to, like, being a parent always the, the hardest? hardest way? Well, it's not. What That's is the that? thing. We're, we're just, it's like, not, but we think it is. I mean, what, like, why do we think it is? Yeah. No, we're, like, fed a bunch of... Well, the real inaccuracy or, or inequity is when you look at, I have a thyroid condition, which by the way, contributes to anxiety. So like, it makes sense. An autoimmune disease and my thyroid stopped working when I was 24. So I'm on, I take thyroid replacement medication, right? Mm -hmm. And Zoloft is basically brain chemistry replacement medication. Those two mm -hmm. things are treated so differently by the medical community and things have changed. Yeah. My oldest kid is 11 and a half now. So things have changed so much in the past decade. But when I was trying to get pregnant and then pregnant with her, there was a huge bias, at least in the media and amongst some medical professionals that, you know, taking any kind of medication during pregnancy was somehow less than, even if the research said it was totally fine with the baby. I'm not suggesting everybody go out there and take like drugs that are known to be, you know, class C drugs. There are classes of drugs and Zoloft is one of those that's like been cleared. I don't remember if it's A or B, but it's in whatever the class where it's like totally fine. And I just couldn't do it and was really miserable and um, stayed off of it too long. You know, it, the hard thing is when you're off of the medication, you're not able to reason as rationally about 
the medication itself. So it was, it was well, right to get back onto and, it. And it's I like... think people, exactly. And I think people talk a lot about postpartum depression and less about postpartum anxiety and postpartum anxiety is huge and real. And if you, for example, have had OCD and anxiety disorders all your life, you are at a much higher risk to have postpartum anxiety, yeah. which I did. And I had, I had so much practice in hiding it and coping and working around it that I think I knew what was going on. My husband knew what was going on. We were constantly talking about it. I was in therapy. We were, you know, we were on it, but it took me a really long time to be like, okay, yeah, I need to, I need to go back to the medication that, you know, trains the dog and lets me call the shots. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I feel like more people need to talk about. And then for my second pregnancy, I did stay on the medication and it was, it was night and day. It was just a different, you know, it turns out that taking care of a newborn is like so much easier when you're not really, <laughs> really, really anxious. So who knew? <laughs> I mean, it's, this is groundbreaking research here, you guys, case study of one. You know what it is as far as that goes though, is whether you are, full-blown in postpartum anxiety or have an anxiety disorder, having a newborn is an anxiety-filled time, especially the first time. But I feel like even the second time, even when you're more chill, it's still there because they're different. When I meet people who are like not at all anxious about it or whatever, I'm like, oh, I'm worried about you. You're supposed to be anxious. You are supposed to be on high alert. You are taking care of another human life. That's why you're supposed to be a little yeah. bit anxious because you are supposed to wake up in the middle of the night and wonder if they've had enough to eat. It's an immense responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. I think almost because of that, it's easier to brush off this idea of postpartum anxiety or, yeah. you know, it's like, right. that's normal. Right. And even when we're talking about postpartum depression, so many of the symptoms of that are what are considered normal new mom things. I mean, the hormone roller coaster yeah. is... I mean, it's so hard to tease apart. It's kind of like what we were just talking about with like my childhood and trying to tease apart being, you know, severely hypoglycemic and being anxious and having OCD. Those things all just are this like really beautiful biodynamic soup mm -hmm. that's like symbiotic. They all feed off of each other and it's so hard to tell what's what. And then when you're a high achieving individual, as I was as a kid, it's even more hard to tease apart what's what and mm -hmm. what parts of it you want to keep and make work for you and what parts of it you want to say, like, I need to take this off my plate and like not yeah. think about yeah. this. And, and, you know, you know, it's interesting that you were saying about how the anxiety was rewarded because you were high achieving it probably meant that you mm -hmm. were always prepared for tests and you were always on time. Oh, yeah. and you made sure there were no I mean, spelling mistakes. Right. It's the same thing of like, my car doors are always locked. Yeah. You know, like there are some functions in which anxiety is really helpful to mm -hmm. us as humans. And that's what makes yeah. it tricky. I think, I think in some ways, I don't know, I'm not a mental health professional and I don't want to be out here being like anxiety is harder to diagnose than depression. But I think in all diagnoses of any kind of mental illness, I think there's so much nuance yeah. and that's why we need professionals. And that's why, you know, I, you know, I've had a, a lot of great general practitioners help me, but like the people who really know what they're doing are instrumental, the therapists, the psychopharmacologists, the psychiatrists, those people understand the nuance right. and are able to see through some of the high achieving bullshit or whatever you're throwing at them whether you need to or not 
it's important to talk to somebody who understands all of the shades of the Mm -hmm. spectrum in between high achieving and super anxious. So when did you realize that the anxiety was problematic? I think it wasn't until I went to college because again, the way we develop as part of our family unit is when you have attentive parents, it is so much, we're all part of a system and that takes into account certain deficits and abilities. And so I think so much of my angst was wrapped up and either helped by or soothed by the way my family functioned as a kid, which again, you could look at objectively and be like, that's great. It worked for me. Right. But when I went to college and I didn't have that daily support system, it became really apparent that some of the ways that I functioned and coped was not sustainable as an individual. And that's when it became really obvious. And I had a really great therapist in college who was like, oh, so you don't have to feel this way all the time, you know, and, and sort of helped me tease apart all of those pieces. And also it was around when I met my husband and he's just like amazing and wonderful. And I wanted to be open and vulnerable and emotionally available in a way that I realized I needed more support to be because my anxiety was making it hard to be the good partner that I suddenly wanted to be. So for a variety of reasons, it became really apparent in college that it was time to get this under control. Mm -hmm. Did you immediately go and talk to somebody or did you confide in friends and family first? Definitely confided in friends and family. And then I had a really interesting experience, which I think is important to talk about, which is that when I finally did decide I was ready to try medication, I think I had the prescription for two years before I took it. Wow. It was a really hard decision. I talked it over. A lot of people told me not to do it, but a lot of people told me to do it. This was 1999. And for some reason, taking, you know, a run-of-the-mill SSRI was still really controversial for a lot of people. So I finally made the decision and I was like, really, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I need to do this. Like I want to, you know, be my best self and enjoy my life and all of this stuff. And sort of talked myself into it. And I went to the pharmacy to pick up the prescription, having had it filled. And the pharmacist pulled me aside and was like, you don't want to take this. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, you, you, you don't want to take this medication. It's going to like change who you are. It's going to mess you up. It goes on your permanent record. You won't be able to get a job. Nobody's going to hire you. Everybody's going to know. I mean, she just fed me. I don't know, but I grew up in a smallish town in between two huge cities. And my dad was a, he's retired now, but he was a TV reporter on the local like Baltimore news. And this was, you know, at a time before the internet, when local news was like the thing. So I grew up like with a famous parent basically. And so she was like, I know who you are and I know who your dad is. And like, people are going to talk and you don't want to be that person, you know, ridiculous for so many reasons. But so basically this pharmacist told me not to take medication after I'd been through this, like really gut-wrenching thoughtful, (laughs) protracted decision to do it. And that really sucked. Luckily, I did not listen to her. But that was unfortunate. I do not recommend that experience. That's so out of a pharmacist's purview to be commenting like that. Oh, I know. I know. Now, to be fair, like Zoloft made me feel like garbage. 
right? Like we were saying at the beginning about aftermath, not every yeah. book is for every kid in every moment, not every drug is for every person right. in every context. So like, and there is a lot of trial and error for people. Like, no, there's no, no one size fits not. all. Drug, no, absolutely not. But that just feels right. like it's got to be like against some oath or whatever that they take as pharmacists. Oh, probably. It's been prescribed by a doctor. It's not their decision to make whether you take it or not. There is this like box you check on prescription things. It says like counsel provided or, you know, like patient denied counsel. Like there is a part of the patient pharmacist relationship where they are supposed to counsel you about what you're taking and warn you of any side effects and talk to you about the pros and cons of taking it. But it feels like this like really transcended the appropriate. And I suppose because of, like you said, she knew who your father was. She knew who you were. So maybe mm-hmm. she had that like sense of familiarity that she felt like she could talk to you like a friend. Yeah. Being the child of a famous person in a small town is like also a trippy experience <laughs> because you grow up feeling like everybody's watching you. And, and in a way, are, like they yeah. and that doesn't are. add to anxiety at all. Like feeling like people are just watching. No, you no, no. That's <laughs> the opposite. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, that's, that's just like net positive. I, yeah, it's real great. I mean, so yeah, so there's a lot of complex factors. And I feel like, you know, that's when you, when you talk about like, when did I know, realize I was anxious? Or when did I realize I had OCD? It's like all of these factors like pile in. And I think about with kids today, all of the different factors that are making mental illness either easier or harder to diagnose. We've got climate change, we've got school shootings, and we've got the pandemic, I mean, and a million other things, but like, let's stick to those three for a second. There are going to be kids in 30 years having the same discussion that I am and the factors they're going to talk about that either made it really easy for them to get care or really hard for them to get care could be any one of those things. You know, the pandemic in some ways normalized mm-hmm. mental illness, but in other ways, isolated people. School shootings make everyone anxious and at the same time, there are some people who are like, just don't think about it, don't think about it. And that might make people more anxious. Climate change is a very real thing. And again, there are people who are denying it. That's like such a mind trip. So the way that we all experience and talk about mental illness can be so affected by our circumstances. And right now in the world, the circumstances are such that like, I I don't even know how to extrapolate it all. Like there are times where I feel very anxious about climate change, but is that an anxiety disorder or am I just a smart person? Yeah, being you're just attention? a human existing in this world where we are. Yeah. And I mean, the answer is all of the above. You know, like I'm still in therapy now and therapy is the best and I love it. And every so often I'll say to my therapist, like, I'm really struggling. There's this like pandemic. And she'll be like, yeah, that's sweet. You know, like that's within the realm of, I hate the word normal, but you know what I mean? Like the, the normal human experience, like sometimes the anxiety we feel in some ways it's a relief to go through something that everybody is anxious about right. after years and years of being the only person who right. is anxious, suddenly to be in good company and everybody's anxious. Like in some ways, the beginning of the pandemic was very comfortable for me because I was like, yes, everybody's in my boat, finally paying attention. Where have you all been? Yes, we are washing our hands. Yes, we are, you know, thinking about our six foot bubble. We are paying attention finally. You know, it was like, thank you all for joining me at my party. Where have you been? But on the other hand, yes, we were all still pretty anxious. So it's, it's very hard to tease it apart. And then I think in some ways it gets even more complicated when you talk about being a creative person, because I mean, show me a creative writer who doesn't have some kind of 
I don't know, there's sort of like that old stereotype of like artists being tortured and that's where their art comes from. And of course that does not have to be so, but there, there is some degree of like, you have to have some emotions to write about or paint about or dance about mm-hmm. or whatever it is you're doing. Like you have to have big feelings that can't come out any other way. And like, who has big feelings? Oftentimes people who are anxious or depressed or, you know, like these things all commingle. And so it's complicated, but it's also pretty beautiful. Like if you can get to a point where you have the help you need and you're able to, again, like, I feel like I've said this five times already, but sort of like choose how you want to experience it and make it work for you. Well, I love the analogy of the trained puppy versus the untrained puppy. Like either way you have a dog. Right. And it's like a dog you inherited. You didn't necessarily ask for this dog. Like it got dumped on your doorstep and like you love it. But there are days where you're like, but like now how do you manage this? And how do you make that relationship work? Because I mean, it's not something that you cure or that maybe even you want to cure, but it's not like you have OCD and then it just is gone for the rest of your life. No, it's just about, no, no, no. It's, it's definitely a way of like getting to choose how much of it to sort of let in yes. and in what way? Yes. Therapy, medication. Mm-hmm. Are there other mm-hmm. things that you do to help you cope? I mean, writing really helps. Again, it's just another way in which my career as a writer is so interwoven with all of the pieces of my life. Like I can't imagine not writing. I also can't imagine not being a reader or a movie watcher or a tv watcher or like a a, a consumer of media because that's always been such a comfortable respite for my brain and there will be nights where I'm like I'm feeling kind of anxious you know I'll say that to my husband and I'll be like I think I just need to like put on headphones and watch you know a fun Mm -hmm. show now and it's that is like probably one of my best coping mechanisms for times when the world feels like a little bit too much and you just need to like take a trip to Pawnee, Indiana or Dunder Mifflin, (laughs) you know, or wherever, you know, it's kind of like meditating except the opposite. You know, I find I've tried, I I have meditated and I, I did a stretch where I meditated every day for a year and like, yay, that was great. I made it work. But like, I don't know what, how other people with OCD would feel about this, but I will tell you that meditation is not always where my brain needs to go. Sometimes my brain needs distraction, mm-hmm. you know, like this idea of being alone with my thoughts and like trying to make them go away. I mean, that's just hilarious. <laughs> And I think like meditation is great, but it's also, I, I think I really only in recent months and it's because of the book that I'm writing about the girl with synesthesia. I think I've really like come to terms with the realization that I am not neurotypical by virtue of having not just synesthesia, but OCD is sort of on that neurodiverse spectrum. And I didn't really realize that until recently. And I sort of felt like it wasn't fair to call myself neurodiverse. And then I have a good friend whose daughter is on this on the autism spectrum. And she we were talking about this and she sort of gave me permission. I hate to use that word, but we talked about it and and she was sort of like very welcoming and and helpful in me, like feeling like it was okay to call myself neurodiverse. And so Things like meditate, everybody's like, oh, you don't need Zoloft, just meditate. I'm like, well, do you have a neurodiverse brain? Because meditation isn't always great mm-hmm. for everybody. You know, it's not a one size fits all. The other place where that comes in, I know a lot of people talk about exercise as an anxiety relief. Not for you? 
Oh, guys, I've got some complicated feelings about that. First of all, exercise just like floods your body with lots of energy and endorphins. And depending on what kind of anxiety you have, it's not what you need. I got so mad like two weeks ago. I read this article. It was old. It was like two years old, whatever, in which this like actual like well-respected psychologist said in a TED talk that exercise was just as effective, if not more than antidepressants for anxiety. And I hit the roof. I mean, like, you know, in my own house to to my (laughs) poor husband and my best friend who got such an earful. (laughs) That is not true. That is not how all brains work. And in that time where I went off of medication, trying to get pregnant and then being pregnant and then being a new mom, in that year before I got pregnant, I exercised every day for over an hour and ended up just absolutely wrecking my body, like messed up my joints, like was not getting enough calories, like doing irreparable damage to my body because they were like, every time you feel anxious, exercise. Doctors were telling me, exercise more, exercise more. Oh, you guys, it's not always the answer. it might work for some people. And we've had this these types of conversations all the time is that I feel like the yeah. one that that's most memorable is yoga because like people always say do yoga oh my god I hate yoga I love so, yoga but you're not the first person that we've had on the show to say that and I tend to be a little anxious I have anxiety I run a little anxious and probably have my entire mm-hmm. life and sometimes exercise can feel like anxiety because your heart starts racing and it produces more cortisol, right? Is that, am I thinking of the right hormone? And it's like your emergency. Like I always think, yeah, so I'm Eastern European Jewish and there's all of this stuff that is passed down epigenetically. Like there are all of these generational trauma, right? So like, for example, a lot of people, you know, if they like skip a couple meals or they're sick, you know, they'll like lose weight. For women in my family, it's the opposite because for generations we've been facing famine and like, and starvation and our bodies have like adapted to be like, oh no, we might have to feed babies. We might have to get pregnant and breastfeed and all that. And so we like hold on to it. Right. So there are these ways yeah, of so I was just thinking, yeah. over time epigenetically. And when I exercise, my body is like, oh my God, who are we running from? Like, <laughs> there's no like pleasure running. My body goes, oh my God, it's definitely the Nazis or the, yes. you know, whatever historical, like it is not the happy place for my body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it can almost make me feel panicky. I will say though, I love walking. I walk every day during the bulk of the pandemic. When I had more time, I would walk four miles a day and it was lovely. Sweet now I, I try to walk at least two miles a day. I try to walk four miles every day. And I've also started swimming. Ah. My husband and I swim twice a week. It feels great for my body, but I also, I don't think of it as a mental, it is a physical exercise. I, I separate right. those. Like I love swimming. It feels good. It feels no. like my, I'm getting strong and my body feels no, good, I, but I'm never going to be like, you I lift really heavy weights. Maybe and I could go this off new of girl started those like just not the two connected. of us. It's um, always like talking and we're like, shut no. up and just do it. Because when you, when it's, it's heavy, you, all you can focus so it's like a break for my mind because I'm, I'm physically unable to think about anything else. 160 mm-hmm. pounds. Like, yeah. 
that's how I feel about swimming. You're like literally immersed. Like you are submerged. You're focused. I mean, I also like think God bless Southern California, you know, like year round I swim. I'm outside. I look up. The sky is like perfectly blue and the sun is shining and there are palm trees and mountains. And I'm just like, like that just makes me really happy. I mean, this was a huge part of why we moved from New York to California three and a half years ago. I realized that like, and I didn't think you were allowed to feel this way for the longest time, but I realized I am happier around like mountains and palm trees and sunshine. I just sort of thought you were like, um, I feel like everyone in the Toronto area gotten, thinks that, you know, within a couple hundred <laughs> miles had to just kind none of, of them leave. I said to my therapist at one point, I was like, well, it's not like I can just move to California. Like you don't get to just be like, I like palm trees and mountains. Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, you, you could. And I was like, no, you can't just like, that's not a good reason. And she's like, it could be though. Like that can be a good reason for people. And I mean, I noticed a huge difference. I suffer from seasonal affective disorder, which again, people who say they don't notice it, like they are not paying attention. When it is dark outside all the time, really depressing. And it's a lot better here in California. I get so much more sunshine and 360 days a year, I can walk outside and I hike. And sometimes I just walk around my neighborhood. Like it doesn't, there's also this like sort of, value judgment put on hiking versus walking which is like hiking is sexy exercise and like walking is just like it's not really a thing you know certain things more women are prone to them like it's OCD one of those things is there any kind of study that says that one gender is more prone than the other I have no idea it's a great question but I will say and this is a huge tangent and I'm like purposely going to tell us like let's not go there because it's a whole other conversation but I will say So much of my mental health over the course of my life has been affected by taking or not taking hormonal birth control. And that is one area where in the late nineties and early two thousands, I went to so many doctors and said, you know, like I'm an anxious person. I've always been anxious. I own that. I'm the first person to tell you I'm not shy about it. I'm not a depressive person. That's not been my struggle. But when I tried the birth control pill, it made me severely depressed. I went to the doctor and I said, I started taking this pill. It made me really depressed. The doctor said, that is impossible. It's not how brain chemistry work. And I was a good little girl in 1999 and there was no internet and there was no chat room to go and there was no one to ask. So I believed this male doctor who, by the way, this guy is in jail now for molesting patients. So that's a whole other story. I'm not, I think goodness was lucky enough to not be one of those molested patients, but like this guy wasn't great to begin with. But anyway, My point being, over the past 20 years, I've seen that conversation change a lot. And a lot of doctors are starting to acknowledge the way that synthetic hormones affect not just women's mental health, but our preferences, our choices. Like it is, it is a huge change Mm -hmm. to the body. And I'm not saying people shouldn't take it, but I'm saying there needs to be more awareness of how it might affect your choices and like what you think you like and what you think you want and, and who you think you are at that moment. And also just this like, just totally ignored area of the intersection of mental health and hormones, be Mm -hmm. they natural hormones or synthetic hormones, vastly understudied, vastly under-researched, vastly under-talked about. And it's not until I had kids and all of a sudden, once you have kids, if you're lucky, the world of like 
motherhood and sisterhood sort of opens up to you and you meet other women and everybody's sort of like, and I don't mean to exclude non-binary or gay or gender fluid parents, but this tends, and I think amongst people identified as female at birth, people who have uteruses, who lactate, who have given birth, you know, all of those disclaimers, there's sort of a common experience and a, and a borderline, a, a baseline where everybody starts talking about some of their same experiences with hormones, with, you know, whatever. And all of a sudden, everybody's being very open and honest about how hormones affect their mental health and vice versa. And there was no notion of that when I was a teenager. I think it's better today. I think that's one of those things that the internet has actually made better. Mm -hmm. And I think also just we are starting to live in a more accepting society where people are talking more about hormones and periods and menopause and things like that. That used to be dirty words, even though half of our population experiences all of those things. So hopefully it's changing. I hope it's changing for my kids, but you know, the lack of discussion around it is no coincidence. And this idea of like, I don't know the statistics, but I do think certain mental illness is much more common in people who identify as female or people have female hormones. According to the International OCD Foundation, it is... Love it. Which Jen has been looking up while you're talking. Yeah, I'm listening. <laughs> OCD equally affects men, women, and children of all races, ethnicities, and backgrounds. Now, this is according... Oh, my baby is, it, it knows no borders. According to the International OCD Foundation, don't know how reputable they are, it sounds it, but anybody can make a website. So, yeah. we will we'll take it with a grain of salt. I am not discrediting it i just didn't vet that information all right well but yeah it was just something that i was wondering maybe it's because i'm a woman and again we're all women talking but yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if yeah, well, it was more prevalent in women and then there are layers where we could discuss and take apart okay so it's equal quote unquote equal in men women and children but how much of that is disclosed i mean it's like the nightmare of covid testing of right. why people are like oh there's only X number of positive cases right now. And I'm like, yeah, but are you testing 100% of the population? No. And how many people are living with it and dealing with it and coping with it on their own? And thinking that they just have low blood sugar. Right. And how many people are- Or have yeah. been misdiagnosed, right? It's so hard to know. It is so hard with to yeah, know and so many things. I mean, I know there are statistical models that right. are really good at extrapolating yeah. data, but I think when it comes to things as nuanced as mental health, I mean, the other area where you could then take that apart is like, okay, so say it is- just as common in women as it is in men. At what point in their in their lives, premenstrual, postmenstrual, menopause, what, you know, what hormone state, you know, seems to contribute to anxiety or calm anxiety or whatever? Like the idea of identifying women as a monolith statistically just cracks me up because I'm like, there are five different categories of yeah. women over the course of our hormonal life. If you zoom out and you're looking at a 17-year-old young woman mm -hmm. who, you know, has had her period for three or four years versus a 50-year-old woman who's at the beginning or end of menopause. Like, you're talking about completely different yeah. body chemistry. And so the fact that we're even, like, talking about our gender as this one class of, like, all women this, or it's just like, oh. Well, but it's because it's, it's like we have to start somewhere because they don't even, like, pay attention to that, right? Right. It's definitely a whole greater conversation so when you went away to school and were like okay i need help was there ever a time where your anxiety or ocd 
affected relationships? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it it kept me from making really close friends in college because it just took so much work to hold it together. I remember like looking at all these other people who seemed to be like having so much fun and my roommates freshman year were totally lovely and wonderful and I wish I had had the energy to enjoy more time with them but I was very much keep your head down and one foot in front of the other because you know living with a chronic invisible illness is exhausting. It's a you know as I joked before it's a full-time job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think in that way it really really got in my way for a while. I mean, I think it's hard, again, leaving that like bubble of your nuclear family and going into this. And I would imagine with OCD, communal living was not a picnic. Oh, it's a nightmare. (laughs) It's a nightmare. You don't have control. You don't have control over anything. You know, my heart goes out to anybody feeling it now because I remember it's just so lonely and isolating and scary. And when you're in that mental place, it is really easy for your brain to convince you that you're always going to feel that way. Right. And that's the loneliest part, I think, is when you're just like really in it. It is so hard to remember that there have been times and have faith that there will be times when you will not feel that way. And it's something I say to my kids all the time now not in regards to mental illness necessarily, but just feelings in general, just like reminding them, this isn't forever. You are not going to feel like this forever. You like feel it today and cry and hug me tight. And this is okay. Feel those feelings. But I just want to remind you, you're not going to always feel like this. And that is something I just didn't understand. I mean, there are adults who still don't don't understand that. I feel like, you know, no. and when you're talking about mental health, sometimes it's really difficult for people to believe that Mm -hmm. or to see that, whether we're talking about anxiety or depression or OCD, like a lot of people have a hard time thinking they're not always going to feel like that, especially when the feeling is so all encompassing intense and exactly Yes, all-encompassing. Well, and it's also, it's so hard to tease it apart from life circumstances. It's crazy to me that we still live in a world where, like, so many people have, like, just real stigma Mm -hmm. and roadblocks. So being open to the fact that you could be experiencing mental illness, even if it's not permanent. Like, there's, there's this idea of, like... If you get diagnosed with depression, it's like, okay, well, then that's who you are forever. It's like, no, there's also circumstantial mental illness, circumstantial anxiety, which I think like the whole world had during the first several months of the pandemic, right? Circumstantial depression, which people have following loss or grief or hard times, you know, like, I think it would be helpful if we all viewed mental illness on a spectrum, like we're starting to look at things like you know, autism or anything else or sexuality or gender, all of these things exist on a spectrum. And I think it would be so helpful if people felt like they could get help for a mental illness that wasn't necessarily going to become their lifetime identity. Because it does change. And how much do you feel like OCD is part of your identity? It's a great question. And I'm not sure that I could ever quite isolate all of the pieces Mm -hmm. of my life you know there are some things that are experience 
There are some things that are genetic. There are some things that are circumstantial and, you know, that's like the beauty of the human brain. And that's why, like, I love storytelling because at any particular moment, any one of those things can be sort of driving the bus, but that, you know, it is so hard to tell what is what. And I think I didn't even realize that when I was writing Aftermath, you know, I wanted the main character, Lucy, she's a math whiz and she's obsessed with math and she thinks of everything in numbers. And it wasn't until like way later on in the process that it occurred to me that like, that could be a form of OCD or a coping mechanism because here's a girl who's lost her brother and she is obviously dealing with a lot of grief and a lot of anxiety. She's moved to a new town. She's meeting new people. Math is a way that she's coping, but it is also genuinely something she loves and something that makes sense to her and the way her Mm -hmm. brain works. And so do we pathologize her and say that like math is, you know, that her love of math is actually OCD or on the spectrum or any number of other things or do we say like good for her she loves math it's working for her it's you know it is so hard to to designate those borders of like where does um you know personality end and pathology begin and so part of me is hesitant to ever try and tease those things apart too much whether it's with my characters or with myself you know and I've sort of had a similar experience as well with this next book where I'm writing a character who's not neurotypical and who is by all definitions a genius and a prodigy but that doesn't mean she isn't also struggling and so like is her obsession with music is that OCD or is it because she has synesthesia or is it because the circumstances in her life she's really good at this thing and she enjoys succeeding and she's sort of been pushed really lean into that so I think that's another way you know you asked a while back of like what are my mechanisms what do I do I think that's one way that writing is really such a great coping mechanism for me is it is it like we're all just circling around all of these questions and all of these ideas and for me writing is one of those ways to not just explore it on the page but also start a dialogue whether it's between me and the reader or for the reader with someone in their life or their own brain to sort of like have that experience where they're reading this and they get to decide is this character mentally ill or are they a math whiz or are they a musical prodigy and like does it matter? Mm-hmm. And I mean, like it matters in terms of like how the person is getting help if they're not happy, but like, say they're happy and they're flourishing. Does it matter? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, obviously when we did our book club, you actually mentioned having OCD. So I, I think mm-hmm. you're pretty open about it, but are you open about it with people in your real life? Pretty much. Uh, I mean, I feel like that's been an interesting thing over this past year of like, becoming uh, I mean not like I'm a famous author but like a public figure in a way whereas before I wasn't always sharing my thoughts with the public in the way that I've been given the opportunity now whether it's through my book or through all of the publicity I've done around my book and you know written a lot of editorials and essays and been on podcasts like this one and have the opportunity to talk about not just my mental health but my personal experience with trauma which you know really inspired the book I've talked some about that and like it is so interesting and it's kind of a constant experiment of what feels good and what feels right and how much to share Mm -hmm. and what to say and like really sit with that and you know so I think I'm pretty open about it but I have learned to not necessarily lead with it like if it comes up organically I'm never gonna hide it 
there certainly was a point in my life where I, I don't remember if we talked about this in the book club or not, but I've written about this in conjunction with aftermath and trauma response in the book at the beginning, when Lucy meets her new classmates who are survivors of the school shooting, many of them sort of feel compelled to tell her about their experience in the school shooting. They want her to know, this is where I was. This is how I dealt with it. This is where I am now. So they'll be like, you know, I was in this location. I lost this friend and I have PTSD and I'm in therapy. And they're like, get that out of the way because they're not used to interacting with people outside of that experience and they want to get it out of the way. I got so much pushback from a lot of people about that, that like, that's not how people deal with trauma. And I was like, well, that's not true. That is a very basic trauma response. Not goes through that stage, but a special trauma that is denied or doubted by anybody, you know, victims of abuse. When you finally come out with your story, will often go through a phase. And I did this, you know, I was abused towards the end of high school by a teacher and when I finally in my early 20s, like, came to terms with it and came out with it, I went through a phase where like everyone I met, I was like, Hi, I'm Emily. I, you know, I live in New York. Let me tell you this crazy story about what happened to me in high school. Like, mm-hmm. it felt like I had to tell everybody to make it real. And luckily, that phase didn't last forever. And thanks to therapy, I realized that like, not everybody deserves my story and not everybody mm-hmm. needs my story. <laughs> and also, I don't have to be that person to everybody in order to be authentically myself. I don't have to disclose my personal trauma all the time up front. Like, people have to earn that. And also, some of like really don't need to hear it. But it is, you know, the more I sort of researched about that, it's a really common trauma response to sort of want to get that out of the way up front and own it to make it feel real when people have told you that your trauma didn't exist or, you know, and we live in a world where like the Alex Jones hearings just came up, like there's a large part of the population that denies that school shootings happen. And so it was, it seemed very logical to me that these kids when encountering the first new kid to their community in four years would be like, this is what happened to me. This is who I am. And this is how I'm dealing with it. It's sort of a defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I forget exactly what the question was. How did we, how did I get Because she asked like, you know, how much you shared it publicly. If you share this openly with with people. Public sharing. So at various points in my life, there have certainly been highs and lows and ups and downs of like how much I share and how open I am about it. But It's really important to me, particularly for the sake of my kids and other people's kids to never hide it or lie about it because, I mean, that doesn't mean that if my kids have friends over, I'm like, oh, hi, you're my daughter's friend. Let me tell you about my OCD. Like I have to do that, but I don't want it to be a dirty secret because it's not a dirty secret. And I feel like I still do have, I have friends who also have OCD who still sort of whisper it and try and keep it from their kids and don't say like, you know, instead of therapy, they'll be like, I have a phone meeting or whatever. And I'm just like, I tell every time I have any kind of a meeting that that's therapy because yeah. it's the only thing mine won't interrupt. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Recording or therapy. Those are the only times that they don't interrupt. No, that's a good point. And I, I understand there's still so much yeah. stigma and I'm so sad yeah. for the people who still feel like they need to whisper I, it or pretend like they're not going I to therapy, do think... especially in front of their kids. Yeah. 
I want my kids to seek help the minute they think they might need it, you know? So like, I'm trying to normalize it the heck out of it all the time. And there is stigma, I think around, well, there's definitely stigma around mental health and there's stigma around OCD. And I think there's also a lot of like, I don't know if people understand OCD and like, we were talking about things existing on a spectrum. Like, I think if you say, oh, I have OCD, people probably automatically go to, oh, so she washes her hands 30 times a day. And she has to like touch the door right. 15 so times before she has to touch the, the door. door. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's the Jack Nicholson character in As Good As It Gets. You know, I have to say popular culture has not done us a lot of favors when it comes to portrayal of people with OCD. I'd like to hope that I, as a writer, am contributing to some of that as a spectrum because I am writing as somebody with OCD and my characters like... I think all unintentionally have some Some form of anxiety or OCD because it's the only way that I understand the human brain. And of course I'm writing from my perspective and this is why all of those things exist. Like we need diverse books and own voices and all of these other movements within publishing and storytelling of this idea of like, yeah, we need diverse creators because that's how we get diverse stories. And so I do think that probably all of my characters have OCD. Now, whether it is, to a point where it needs to be pathologized, medicated, and treated or not is always up for question. And that's definitely intentional. And I'm happy with that because I do think like it's totally possible to have mental illness that does not need acute treatment. Absolutely. Times in life. And that some coping mechanisms can be really beautiful and can drive people to do amazing things as long as they are feeling like they're driving the bus or they're training the puppy and the dog isn't running their life or the bus isn't out of control or like whatever metaphor you want to use. So I do hope that I'm contributing to the portrayal of a more nuanced portrait of what it's like to have OCD, because I do think there are so many experiences and, and mine is only one. I hope there are lots of writers out there writing about OCD And also writing about people who may incidentally have OCD, but not necessarily writing OCD stories because we've had that too. I don't feel a need to write specifically about it, but it's going to work its way into my art. Yeah, I think the more like we have conversations like this and the more that they, it becomes more of like a normal conversation that's kind of where the things change not by having these big sweeping things like here's a book that's about a kid that has OCD and that's what it's about right right I know there are people in my life who had I asked for their opinion on whether or not I should do this podcast and talk specifically about having OCD who would have been horrified and told me not to and like really strongly recommended that I didn't but you know what I didn't ask those people for their opinion (laughs) because I knew I wanted to do this, but I know those people are in my life and that's okay. And times are changing. And also I'm like, so what, like, what is the, what is the cost going to be? Am I like, what is it going to cost me to tell this story? Are there going to be people who will respect me less? First of all, I don't think so. But second of all, if there are, I just really don't they want them They probably didn't respect life. you that much to begin with. Yeah, or they were going to find yeah. another reason to not respect me. Like maybe because I have a uterus or maybe because I'm a mom or maybe whatever. They were going to find a way to discount me right. some other way, right? And then there's like, the there's the fear like, will I get hired for a job or whatever? And I'd really like to think that's not a thing anymore. It certainly was. 
mm-hmm. 20, 30 mm-hmm. years ago when that pharmacist told me I'd never get a job and it's going to go on my permanent record. Like that used to be a concern and probably for good reason. But I also firmly believe that the greatest service, the greatest gift I can give the world, like if we're all here for a reason and a purpose and we're trying to make the world a better place is to talk about this openly, because honestly, if it makes it easier for one person listening Mm -hmm. to this, to start taking medication Mm -hmm. that they need or to get help or go to Mm -hmm. therapy, I I hate calling it help because that makes it seem like you're in an emergency situation. So just like to, to take care of themselves, get support, whatever you want to call it. If it makes it easier for one person, then Mm -hmm. it's worth it. Because when I was going through it, again, this was like pre-internet. So every time I was like in a doctor's office or a nail salon and there were magazines out like People Magazine or Us Weekly, I just remember like going through and if there was any mention of anybody with anxiety and like with a positive spin of like they're doing okay, it meant so much to me. Like I remember Kristen Bell was one of the first celebrities who talked openly about being on medication at various points in life and being in therapy for anxiety and depression and how her mom like told her when she was a teenager, like, hey, this is what this thing is. It runs in our family. And if you ever need help for it, there's medication and it's no big deal. And I was like, God, I wish I had had that. Someone yeah. in my life telling me that when I was yeah. a teenager. And also just, just like the systemic, I mean, we talked before about like, intergenerational genetic trauma like my poor ancestors have been through some serious serious crap and like my great-grandmother who like literally left well what was then Russia and is now Belarus and possibly the Ukraine depending on what our borders are at this particular moment left that part of the world with my grandfather who was five years old and her husband had already come to America and she like knew no one and like got on a boat and sailed around the world like by herself with her toddler to try and escape these people who wanted to kill her. If I could like go back in time and give her some Zoloft, I so would. Would it have like it would not have kept the Russians from trying to kill her, but may it have given her a moment of peace? Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, it's like if I can do this favor for my ancestors, for my grandmother's family who were all killed in the Holocaust, like if I can find a way to find a little more peace and make the world a little bit of a better place by sharing my story mm-hmm. and my experience with people and encouraging other people to take care of themselves and not live in a constant state of fear and stress, it's like kind of the least I can do, you know? So I think of it as as a public service too. Like I really could have used that as a teenager, someone in my life being like, oh yeah, this happens. It's not a big deal. There's medication for that. And like therapy's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I just want to be that person to people. Emily, thank you so much yes. for chatting with us today. This was thank great. Thank you all. Oh my gosh, it's so fun. And thank you for this opportunity to do what we were just yeah. talking about of like, I think there's so much power in sharing our stories. And, and I hope that some kid out there is listening and being like, oh, maybe me having OCD isn't the end of the world. Maybe it's my superpower. And like, I know that's kind of cheesy, but I really do believe that. Like, it makes me a better writer. I'm not saying everybody should go out there and like try and catch OCD because it doesn't (laughs) work that way. You have to, you have to be blessed. Okay. You can't all have it. It's my special superpower. You have to be chosen. Or maybe some parent is listening too and can relax about it being the end of the world for their kid because there's that whole other side of things too, right? I think- particularly when we were kids, and I hope less so today, the stigma of a kid having 
mental illness or, you know, like dyslexia or dysgraphia or any other Mm. difference as like, you know, like, oh, they won't be considered gifted or X, Y, and Z. You know, I think we all understand better now the ideas of like intersectionality and twice exceptional kids and things like that, that these things can all coexist. And it doesn't mean like that your kid is going to be limited in any way. It just means they're going to get better help. So parents, if you think your kid has OCD, buy my book because I'm kidding. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> book anyway, but uh, anyway, yeah. no, but your kid can have an awesome and fulfilling life. Even yeah, with for sure. Yes. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for listening to the now what pod. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. You can find us on social media at the Now What Pod. Until next time, we're Tisha and Jen. Remember, your story matters and you do too.